Thanks very much, Celia, and good evening, everyone. It'd be great if you have that passage open in front of you. Um, page 1079 in the Church Bibles. And as my slide indicates, I'm uh, also drawing on um, the version of the same story uh, that's found in Mark's Gospel. So if I say something to you um, that isn't in John's Gospel, it probably isn't because I'm making it up, but probably because I found it in Mark's Gospel. By the way, it's also found in, in, uh, in Matthew's Gospel, but I'm, I'm thinking particularly about one or two things that Mark tells us that John doesn't. But I'm focusing on John, and if you have it open in front of you, that would be fantastic. I don't know if you've yet reached the age of 20, or uh, if you can look back at the age of 20. But by the time you've reached the age of 20, you will have probably eaten at least 20,000 meals. I wonder how many of those you can rem remember. Um, probably not hundreds or thousands, perhaps just a few. Um, if you are married, uh, then perhaps, I hope, you can remember the... Uh, meal that was held at your reception, or perhaps you can remember the, the reception meal at somebody else's uh, wedding. Uh, maybe m uh, some meal or other that's been uh, shared on perhaps not such quite a happy occasion, uh, perhaps a funeral after uh, a loved one has died. Or maybe a family get-together, Christmas or something. Uh, maybe there are just some meals, I'm sure there's just a few meals amongst those many that you've eaten that stick in your memory. And so it is in uh, the Gospels, uh, they record a number of meals attended by Jesus. And in John's Gospel, there are two that are particularly memorable. One right at the, the, the beginning of his um, uh, public ministry, recorded in the second chapter of John's Gospel. And this is the, um, uh, the, uh, the story of the wedding at Cana in Galilee, when Jesus famously turned water into wine. And uh, it's referred to as the first sign that Jesus performed, because it was a sign. It was done not just for the value it was to the person in charge of that wedding to see him, him, himself running out of wine and then Jesus miraculously producing some, but also as a sign of the fact that Jesus produces life. Jesus brings life and joy. And so that starts off uh, Jesus' ministry with a very notable and memorable feast. And now we have another towards the end of his um, uh, earthly ministry. We are now just a few days before the crucifixion. And Jesus meets in uh, a house in uh, Bethany, just two miles from Jerusalem. He's headed towards Jerusalem. He's been heading there since, uh, uh, for, for some time now. And he knows, he says, I must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things and die. He knows what's going to happen, and yet he goes there uh, steadfastly heading towards Jerusalem. And now he's just two miles away. He's in Bethany, in the home of two sisters, Mary and Martha and their brother Lazarus. And as I say, it's just a few days before the crucifixion. So uh, a number of features uh, make this a very memorable meal. 
uh, the meal is held in honor of Jesus, and no surprise, because Lazarus, who is there around the meal table, is the Lazarus who, in the previous chapter, chapter 11, we are told, had died, had been buried, had been in the grave for four days, his flesh by now, in that climate, we're starting to rot and start to smell. And yet Jesus calls him out of the grave. And he walks out and Jesus says, well, take his grave clothes off, he's alive. So there around that meal table is our Mary and her sister Martha. There's Lazarus, large as life. There is Jesus and there are the 12 disciples all gathered there for that meal. And what a happy occasion it must have been in celebration, really, and in honor of this wonderful miracle that Jesus has done in bringing Lazarus back to life. And yet there's a cloud over this meal as well, as we shall discover, because Jesus' thoughts about what he's going to Jerusalem to endure, his death and his burial, thoughts of those things are not very far away at all. Let's unpack this story by looking at the three main characters within it. That's Mary and, jo and Judas and then Jesus. Mary does something, Judas objects to it, and Jesus speaks out. Let's look at each of those in turn. First of all, what Mary does in verse 3. Mary approaches Jesus with a jar of very expensive perfume. It is called pure nard. And that comes from the foothills of the Himalayas, no less, in northern India. When you think about how difficult it would be to collect the perfume, to purify it, and then to transport it, no wonder it was such an expensive perfume. Why Mary had such expensive perfume, we cannot tell. The guess would be that it was some kind of family heirloom. But she decides that now is the time, now is the moment to use that perfume. And so she comes behind Jesus. Jesus and the others would be reclining around the table. And she comes behind Jesus. She breaks open the alabaster jar and she pours it, and there's a pint of the stuff, there's loads of it, and she pours it all over Jesus. I say all over because Mark refers to her anointing Jesus' head. Mark also records Jesus as saying, she has anointed my body, and Mark makes, uh, and excuse me, John makes a particular point of her anointing his feet. So you've got the whole lot, head, body, and feet anointed, when you put those two accounts together. Anointing someone's head was not particularly unusual, and certainly would be done to recognize a king, to anoint a king as he entered into the first stage of his reign. Much less common would be the anointing of feet, and so that's, in a sense, why John picks that out as being a particularly unusual feature. Of this, uh, of this account. And not only does she anoint Jesus' feet, but she lets her hair down and wipes his feet with her hair. Now that, in the company of men, 
was a scandalous thing to do. I mean, to let, for a woman to let her hair down. Almost unheard of in male company. It's been likened to, in our own day, a woman similarly around a, a, a shared meal hitching up her frock to the top of her legs. Scandalous. Really an eyebrow razor. But we can tell, I think, um, it's not hard to see what Mary is about when she chooses to do that to Jesus' feet. She uses what would be regarded in her culture as her most honourable part, her hair, and to wipe Jesus' most lowly part, his feet. There is this strong spirit of servanthood. I want to serve him. I want to be his servant. And in a sense, you know, Mary is anticipating what Jesus himself will do and say in the very next chapter, chapter 13, when Jesus will kneel down and wash the feet of his disciples and teach them thereby that they must have that attitude towards himself and towards one another, teaching a servant attitude to Jesus and to one another. Mary is anticipating that, I think, already here. But think too about this, that Mary is using the opportunity that presents itself and taking that opportunity with both hands. I don't know how long that expensive perfume had been in the house, but she chooses that moment to use it. I wonder how many opportunities we have to express gratitude towards Jesus that we allow to pass us by. Let's just take a lesson from Mary who did not let that opportunity pass her by. And next time we have, you have, I have an opportunity to serve Jesus, to honour Jesus, to seize it and to take it and not let it pass us, pass us by. Mary took the opportunity. She did what she could. They are the very words of Jesus, again, in Mark's version of the story, when he says, she did what she could. Again, how many of us worry that we cannot do what some other Christians can do to serve Jesus? I can't do what she does. I can't do what he does. I'm not gifted in that way. Well, God doesn't look for us to do what other people can do. He looks for us to do what we can do, what we have the opportunity to do, what we have the gifting to do. And each of us is in that regard unique. We each have a special work of service to do for Jesus, however humble that might be. So that's just a few thoughts about Mary and what she does by way of anointing Jesus with this very expensive perfume. Pause just for a moment, just to use your senses to imagine the scene there. Look with your mind's eye at Mary letting her hair down, pouring that perfume over Jesus, wiping his feet. Smell the fragrance as it fills the whole house. 
it seems quite possible that that fragrance would have stayed with Jesus for the entire week until he came to the Garden of Gethsemane, the Last Supper, and to Calvary. It stayed with him as a reminder to him and to others of her act of humble worship. Feel, if you can, the softness of her hair on his feet. And hear the stunned silence of those around the table as they watch and listen and smell and are really rather scandalized by the whole thing. And that's Judas who speaks up. Verses 4 to 6. So let's just consider Judas's words in this matter. Verses 4 to 6. Judas complains that perfume could have been, was worth a working man's wage for a whole year. It could have been sold and that money been given to the poor. Well, it's kind of plausible, isn't it? It could have been sold, and that money could have been used uh, to, 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 to help the poor. Would that not, do you suspect, have been a better use of the money than just pouring it all away in one single extravagant act? Well, it's a plausible complaint from Judas, but utterly insincere, of course, because we're then immediately reminded that he was a pilferer. He was light-fingered. He had been entrusted to keep the purse on behalf of Jesus and the disciples, and he had a habit of putting his hand in it and spending the money on himself. So in fact, we, I think we can believe that when Judas said that money could have been used to feed the poor, what he really meant was that money could have been used by me. And then again, think of what then Judas then went on to do just a short time afterwards. He would sell Jesus off. He would betray Jesus for approximately one-third of the value of that perfume. Talk about somebody knowing the price of everything and the value of nothing. There's Judas for you. And what a sad, sad story that is of a sin in a man and a sin that just escalates from petty pilfering through the sell selling off the saviour of the world for 30 pieces of silver. Think of the privilege privileges, not only that Mary had, think of the privileges even greater that Judas had as he followed Jesus around heard Jesus' wonderful teaching, saw the integrity of his life, observed his wonderful miracles, and yet for Judas, it all came to nothing. Do not spurn the opportunities that you have, including the opportunity that God gives you to what Scripture calls to mortify, to kill off those sins of selfishness and greed and pride and whatever yours and my besetting sin might be. 
before they overtake us and eat us up and turn us into, at best, neglectors of Christ and at, birth, and at worst, the equivalent of what Judas did. Let us pray for grace, that God would give us grace to uh, not to allow those sins, uh, whatever they might be in our own lives, to grow as they did with him. Let me turn now from Mary and from Judas to Jesus. Mary, it seems, didn't know what to say, didn't know how to reply to Judas's objection. But Jesus knew what to say. One of the things he says in verse 7 is, she did it, she did this anointing of me in anticipation or in preparation, I think that's what it means in verse 7, of my burial. In picturing Mary as anointing Jesus' head and body and feet, it actually isn't a mere anointing at all, is it? It's actually an embalming. And that's the way that Jesus understands it. He's not only anointed as king, but he's anointed as a king who must die. After all, Jesus would often say, I must do this, or I must do that. He had that sense of destiny, that sense of God-given purpose. He knew that he must be in that place, Jerusalem, at that time, Passover. To be sure, his crucifixion, the crucifixion of Jesus, was a vicious, a wicked human act. It was with the help of wicked men that Jesus was put to death, put to death by nailing him on the cross, says Peter in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. But the same Peter in the same breath says it was also by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. Isn't it wonderful that God can turn the most wicked of human acts, the killing of his own dear son, and turn it around so it becomes the means of salvation for us all? There's a second thing that Jesus says about what Mary has done. In answer to Judas's objection, the money could have been sold and used to feed the poor. Jesus says, verse 8, you will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. At first sight, that, that, or first hearing, that sounds rather callous, doesn't it? As though, oh, don't worry about the poor, they can... they'll always be around don't worry about them I don't think that Jesus means that at all I think that Jesus is alluding to a verse in Deuteronomy chapter 15 and the 11th verse where God says this to his people of old he says there will always be poor people in the land so what just get used to it (laughs) no There will always be poor people in the land. Therefore, I command you to be open-handed towards your brothers and towards the poor and needy in your land. So the very reason that you always have the poor amongst you is also the reason why God's people should care for the poor. So Jesus' point, I think, is this. Not 
don't worry about the poor, but you can and you should care for the poor and the needy at any time. But there are other things that can only be done at a particular time. And, that, and that's what Mary has done. She has anointed me at this particular time. And that's why I speak up for her and defend her. There's a third thing that Jesus said about what Mary did, and that again is recorded in Mark's version. This is Mark 14 and verse 9. When he says this, when Jesus says this, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what Mary has done will also be told in memory of her. Two wonderful things about that saying of Jesus. Firstly, he's been talking about his own death and burial, and yet he says there will be a gospel to be preached. There will be good news to be preached at some time in the future. He could see that his own death and burial would issue in something wonderful that would not have been possible if he had not died and been buried. But the second wonderful thing about what Jesus says about Mary is that alongside this big story of what God has done in Christ by way of the gospel, the good news of salvation for the world, Mary's little story about what she did for Jesus will also be told. And I think that's great, that one small person's act of humility gets told to this very day. We tell the story today, haven't we? And it reminds me, it tells me, it encourages me that whatever we do for Jesus, however nobody else knows about it, however humble it may be, nothing we do for Jesus is ever wasted or forgotten. It wasn't in her case, and it will not be in your case or my case either. Other people may not know or notice, but Jesus knows and notices and he, and, and, uh, and that is of inestimable value. Conclusion then. Mary did what she could. What do you think you would have done under the circumstances? Mary risked the disapproval of others. She certainly got the disapproval of, uh, of Judas. What do you think you are prepared to risk in being obedient to Jesus and in serving him. Mary threw caution to the wind in expressing her love for Christ and in giving the very best that she had. What will you and I offer back to the one who has given us so much in his life, in his death, in his glorious resurrection, in his continuing life with us and among us by his Holy Spirit. What would you have done? What will you do with this same Jesus? Let us pray. Lord Jesus, when I consider your goodness, your truthfulness and your sacrifice, when I think that you came down from heaven and walked this earth and gave up your life for me, when I reflect at this very moment 
that you live in those who belong to you and they live in you, then I feel it to be not only a duty and a responsibility, but a privilege and a joy to love you as you first loved me, to tell what you have done for me, to give as you have given to me. Freely have I received, I want to freely give. That the world might know this good news and believe and trust and serve and that I might know nothing, that nothing done for you is ever wasted or forgotten.'"